0: Greetings, everyone. Lazla Montgomery here, bringing you part two of our CHP overview of the American Volunteer Group, better known by many as the Flying Tigers. This episode is going to run much longer than part one. I thought I could cut this cake in two equal halves, but the CHP planning department really messed up on this one. Hope you don't mind. Uh, last episode in part one, we discussed how Jiang Kai-shek had appointed his wife, Song Mei-ling someone he knew he could trust, to manage the project of building an air force for China. She also had a lot of connections in D.C. thanks to her illustrious brother, T.V. Song. Japan had been slamming China mercilessly from the air since 1937, and although there were attempts to counter the Japanese air attacks, the Chinese people took a massive amount of punishment to counter this, the powers that be in Chongqing began scrambling for a solution. Jiang's brother-in-law, T.V. Song, was able to use his influential friends in Washington, D.C., to convince Franklin Delano Roosevelt, even before Pearl Harbor, to give the okay to use Claire Chenault as essentially a cutout to put together an all-American outfit that could get around U.S. neutrality and make a contribution to halting the progress of the Japanese in China. It's quite an amazing story how it all got put together behind the scenes. Again, I strongly suggest Daniel Ford's book, Flying Tigers, Claire Chenault and his American Volunteers, 1941 to 1942. That's uh, from Smithsonian Books. So, just in time for the Marco Polo Bridge incident, Claire Chenault headed out to China. This was right after his retirement from the Army in the summer of 1937. Chiang Kai-shek asked Chenault for an honest assessment of the Chinese Air Force, the CAF. After thoroughly assessing the force, Chenault reported to the Generalissimo that uh, he didn't have too much. Then a noble attempt was made by Chenault to whip something into shape, and over the next few years, he'll move heaven and earth to train Chinese pilots and build an effective air force for the Chinese. Despite all this great and heroic effort by Chenault and many others, it just wasn't happening. With nowhere else to turn and with the U.S. still neutral, the AVG was born and began to assemble in Burma during the summer and late fall of 1941. We looked at all that in the last episode in part one. They didn't have to wait long before the fireworks started. Pearl Harbor, of course, was bombed on December 7th, 1941, with the intention that this would disable the U.S. military sufficiently enough whereby Japan could go in and help themselves to all the former colonial possessions of Britain and the Netherlands, and the Philippines too. That was uh, an American-controlled territory. So at a moment in history, right after Pearl Harbor, when the U.S. was back on its heels, it was left to the AVG, the American Volunteer Group, and their Curtis P-40s to join with the RAF and the CAF to fight back at a time when Japan's armies were advancing and seemingly unstoppable. With war now officially declared, plans to move ahead with the second and third AVG, who we discussed in the last episode, were scrapped. And the first AVG simply became known as the AVG. Three days after Pearl Harbor, Japan had steamrolled into Thailand and had taken over, with Thailand under Japan's thumb. Next up on the list was Burma. The AVG's first mission of the war didn't see any combat. This was a uh, only a recon flight over an airbase in Thailand that showed, indeed, Japan was in full control there. Then on December 20th, 1941, the Japanese Air Force was first formally introduced to these enemy aircraft with their shark mouths and deadly, effective dive-bombing techniques that were just a bitch to defend against. It all started with another... Routine Kunming bomb run for a group of 10 Japanese KI-21s, or Sally's. These were the kind of things that the Kunming residents had been putting up with for a year. The air sirens would go off and everyone just ran for cover until the Japanese were finished bombing them. Chenault's early warning system picked them up, and one of the three squadrons went up in the air to face them. This was it. On this freezing cold December day, the Japanese were welcomed by four AVG fighters. Four KI-21s would get blown out of the sky, and the other bombers dumped their payloads short of their destination and skedaddled back to their base in Thailand. And when they landed and were debriefed, they didn't know who these guys were who were firing on them. The planes had nationalist Chinese markings. Were they Chinese or, or what? And those shark mouths painted on the nose and fuselage? Dang, what's up with that? Chenault had written of that day, quote, This was the decisive moment I had been awaiting for more than four years. American pilots in American fighter planes, aided by a Chinese ground warning net, about to tackle a formation of the Imperial Japanese Air Force, which was then sweeping the Pacific skies, victorious everywhere. I felt that the fate of China was riding in the P 40 cockpits through the wintry sky of Yunnan. I yearned heartily to be 10 years younger and crouched in a cockpit instead of a dugout, tasting the stale rubber of an oxygen mask and peering ahead into the limitless space through the cherry red rings of a gunsight. The Chinese press had a field day with this December 20th battle. They called them the Feihu, or flying tigers. The local Chinese were ecstatic that someone had come to help defend them against the Japanese. Essentially, on this date, Kunming was spared a day of bombing. The place was already in tatters, but it was a great morale booster at a time when a little good news went a long way. The Japanese would come back again and again, but for now, they knew there was no more free ride, and they didn't own the skies any longer. The reality was that although the AVG schooled the Japanese, this first episode of air combat didn't go too well, and the pilots made many mistakes and allowed most of the Japanese bombers to get away. But Japan got a black eye from this, and they found out rather quickly who these flying tigers were. Well, what could they say anyway? The war was on. So there was this big first encounter on December 20th, and then orders came to get out of China and head in a southerly direction to Burma, because that was where the next big battle was going to be fought. If Japan shut down the port of Rangoon, then China was finished as far as any hopes of overland resupply went, the Japanese plan called for Rangoon to be taken as the first step in their ultimate conquest of Burma. So, the AVG left China and were sent to go join that fight. They were based in Mingaladan and shared the base with their partner in this fight, the Brewster Buffalos of the 67th Squadron of the RAF. And no one told these guys about the special relationship that Churchill hadn't yet coined. Not much, if any, cooperation went on at first in Mingaladan. The AVG pilots and crew, with their boozing ways, their whoring and their antics in general really got under the skin of the Brits. At the beginning, it was really nasty between the Amerikanskis and the British, but that will change soon. December 23rd, the Japanese made their first bombing raid on Rangoon. That shook everyone up. But after the bombers dropped their payloads, they ran into a squadron of AVG pilots and six Japanese planes were shot down. And two AVG pilots also went down and didn't survive. On Christmas Day, 1941, the Japanese were intent on bombing Rangoon into submission, just as they had done with Shanghai. This day ended well for the Flying Tigers. In this encounter, the pilots utilized the dive-bombing techniques taught by Chenault for the first time. Two AVG P-40s were lost, but the pilots survived. The head of the squadron radioed in that 15 Japanese bombers had been downed and nine fighters. The RAF bagged seven Japanese aircraft, but at a loss of six pilots and nine aircraft. It was right about here where the two unwilling partners finally came together and began to share resources and get along. As much as the AVG and RAF were acting as the fly in the ointment for the Japanese, overall, there was no stopping Japan. While Japan might have been suffering bad losses in the air, no one could hold back their ground troops, These RAF and AVG fighters were in the air constantly during this phase, fighting one skirmish after another. To the President of the United States, Chenault had written, "...the American Volunteer Group, which was authorized by you, is happy to report to the Commander-in-Chief that in three combats it has shot down 29 Japanese airplanes and has lost only two of its pilots." If furnished with a very small number of aircraft of proper types and models, and a few more men immediately, we are confident that in cooperation with the Chinese, we can damage and demoralize the Japanese air force that it will cease to be a factor in the China-Burma-Malaya theater of war. Any action must be immediate and must have the full support of the Allied powers. Be assured that the group desires to be of the greatest service to the general cause in this brutal, unprovoked conflict." Once the Japanese army arrived in Rangoon, all they had to do was take it. March 1942 was like Saigon, April 1975. Anything that could be salvaged for the future war effort was sent north to China or west to India. Whatever couldn't be saved was destroyed before Japan got their mitts on it. The whole city was put to the torch to welcome the Japanese army. The Allies evacuated, along with 400,000 other Burmese fleeing to the north. There were so much land-lease supplies in the port that they couldn't blow it up fast enough. The Japanese still managed to seize more than 19,000 tons of Maiden USA arms and equipment that were supposed to go help Chiang Kai-shek. After locking down Rangoon, the Japanese controlled the Pacific Rim from... Japan to Australia. But what a slugfest the conquest of Burma is going to be compared to everything else. Even till the end of the war, the Japanese were incredulous. Why was it so hard to take Burma compared to every other campaign? The way the fight was going in the air, they thought the number of flying Tiger pilots and aircraft was way more than it actually was. But in the end, despite all the heroic effort, the Japanese took Burma. Daniel Ford wrote, quote, At most, the pilots at Mingaladan seem to have destroyed 50 Japanese planes in the air and on the ground up to the fall of Rangoon. Many were bombers, so the JAAF probably lost upward of 150 airmen in an effort to subdue the Allied Air Force in South Burma. By every account, the vast majority fell to guns of the AVG. End quote. This squadron of the AVG got a well-deserved rest. Remember, the AVG was divided up into three squadrons, and when a fresh new squadron arrived, it wasn't just the same old same old defending against incoming bombing attacks. Now the AVG went on the offensive and took the fight to the Japanese. Two of the three AVG squadrons were still in Kunming at this time. A daring raid on a Japanese airbase just across the Thai border shocked the Japanese military. Since the December 20th first encounter with the AVG, the Japanese Air Force now had way fewer aircraft on their hands than what the plan called for. This surprise raid caught the Japanese unaware, and strafing runs did major damage to the planes on the ground. But the next day, the Japanese pilots repaid this debt, and in this encounter, the AVG, for the first and only time, got it worse than they gave. Throughout January of 1942, the Japanese captured all Allied bases in Burma and put everything back together that had been blown up before they got there. And from these former Allied bases, they regularly bombed the port and the city of Rangoon. The AVG and RAF fighters went up to meet them each time in air-to-air combat. Sometimes it seemed the Japanese had an unending supply of aircraft and fresh pilots to throw at the Allied pilots, And most important, they controlled the transport links, so it was much easier for the Japanese to get whatever parts or supplies they needed. The AVG didn't enjoy this luxury, and the mechanics had to perform miracles to keep the P-40s in the air to push back against Japan's Air Force. By middle of February, the military supply channels were able to get badly needed parts to the AVG that allowed them to patch up their aircraft for once. Although Rangoon hadn't fallen yet, that day was imminent. By the end of February, though, it was time to bail from their bases just outside of Rangoon. The British flew to the old AVG base at Kaida, and the AVG squadron fighting in Burma moved north to Magwe in Burma. The Japanese were beginning to get wise to the ways of these flying tigers. Now they were much more careful about how they flew their bombing missions. Almost half of the assets Japan had put in the air had been lost to RAF and AVG fighters. The daring daytime raids by Japan had been too costly. For the time being, they decided to bomb at night only. But on March 18 and 19, 1942, the AVG and RAF made surprise raids on a Japanese airbase in Burma. In strafing runs made by two AVG pilots, 15 fighter planes were destroyed on the ground, and the British bagged 28 the next day. This was another shocking loss to the Japanese. You have to remember, up to this time, early 1942, things hadn't gone too bad for Japan. Since the bombing of Pearl Harbor, no one had been able to effectively stand up to them. Eh, Sure, Japan suffered losses here and there, but pretty much they had come in and taken everything they wanted. But Burma was proving to be different. And even though they had a large fleet of aircraft to fight with, The Japanese military planners had meticulously planned things down to the individual aircraft. And less than two months into the Burma campaign, the losses suffered from the AVG and the British RAF attacks were most unexpected. The ripple effect throughout the planning of this do-or-die offensive by the Japanese was quite considerable. Churchill had said, quote, The victories of the Americans over the rice paddies of Burma, are comparable in character, if not in scope, with those won by the RAF over the hop fields of Kent in the Battle of Britain. End quote. Something had to be done, and the Japanese retaliated with a massive airstrike on the air bases at Magway and Kaidah in Burma. 226 bombing sorties later, the mission was accomplished, and Chenault had to find a new air base. This was located in Loiwing, deep in the mountains of North Burma, where Kamco had established a base there to resupply and repair. The Flying Tigers flew there, took stock of their situation, and grit their teeth in anticipation of what lie ahead. It wasn't all bad, though. While the Japanese were whaling on Magwe, the AVG carried out a neat little raid on Japan's base in Chiang Mai in Thailand. Claire Chenault's two marquee strategies that are so often directly attributed to him were the dive-bombing techniques of the P-40s and the early warning systems that utilized the limited technology of the day. This early warning system would give extra minutes and seconds to the AVG pilots to stop whatever it was they were doing 24-7, jump in their P-40s, and get airborne. Many planes left on the ground by the time the bombers arrived were doomed. Chenault, being a trained fighter pilot himself, knew the luxury of a three-minute warning before an attack commenced. So Chenault had this all in place during this next phase of the war for the AVG based in Loi Something else was going on since January of 1942. This is where military politics began to assert itself into the picture, and our story starts to turn a dark gray. This was when Vinegar Joe Stilwell enters our Flying Tiger story. Stilwell, of course, was featured prominently in that four-part John service series, CHP episodes 115 to 118. He was put in charge of the CBI theater at this time, the China-Burma-India theater. Chenault and Stilwell were rivals. We all recall from past podcasts that Stilwell never self-censored anything when he had something to say, and he did not think much of Chiang Kai-shek. Uncle Joe did not like Jiang, and he didn't respect him as a military leader. Jiang hated Stillwell and literally had to go to FDR and say either he goes or I go. It came down to that in the end. Well, Chenault was a Jiang man, so this was a major point of contention between the two. March, April, May 1942, the Battle of Wills between Stillwell and Chenault will be fought. But in January, February 1942, Stillwell and Chenault are going to Cross swords almost from the start. Firstly, all these amazing achievements of the Flying Tigers had been seized upon by the U.S. authorities charged with PR. Whatever could be milked for propaganda value was milked to the last drop. So Chenault and his team had quite a bit of shine on them, and you could say his share price and that of his outfit was riding high. Chenault and his Flying Tiger pilots were seen in the public eye as quite the heroes and Hot Shots, and he was a young man. In fact, two years after the war ends, Claire Chenault is going to marry Chen Mei, who became known in the history books as Anna Chenault. She will be 90 years old this June 2015. When Claire Chenault died in 1958, it was Anna Chenault who carried the banner in the USA for Chiang Kai-shek's regime after he lost the Civil War. She was a stalwart in the China lobby when the only China that mattered in Washington, D.C. was the one led by Chiang. In the 1960s and 70s, she was also a Republican Party heavyweight, particularly when it came to China. So the main point here is not only were Stilwell and Chenault rivals from within the military, They totally parted ways where it came to respect for the Generalissimo. And as I just said, Stilwell was also notoriously denigrating to the Air Force. His philosophy called for boots on the ground as the only way to win battles and wars. As far as Stilwell was concerned, the only role the Air Force played was for reconnaissance and as a general support role for the soldiers fighting the battles on the ground. So you could imagine what Chenault thought about this line of thinking. Now, I never mentioned this before, but Chenault had a rival. Well, more like an enemy. This was someone he knew from his days back in flight training school. He was Clayton Bissell. He was part of Stilwell's gang, and from here on out, until the AVG was officially closed down on July 4th, 1942, he was a stone in Chenault's boot. Time and again, Stilwell will keep Chenault under his thumb, by always stacking the deck so that his man Bissell outranked him. And in the military, rank means everything. Still well pushed and all to side, and he figured he was going to be the one to shove the Japanese back out of Burma. But when all was said and done, and Vinegar Joe's army got the you-know-what kicked out of them, on April twenty third, 1942, they had to make an epic retreat. Like MacArthur in the Philippines... Stillwell had the chance to make a quick getaway via air, but unlike MacArthur, he famously chose to stay with his troops and personally led a hasty retreat across Burma into India, just missing annihilation from the Japanese. Stillwell demanded that Chenault order his pilots to carry out these suicidal recon missions and air support over the area of battle. Then to complicate matters, Chiang Kai-shek began issuing contradictory orders Chenault got caught in the middle. In the end, he listened to his men, who were on the verge of mutiny unless these missions ordered by Stilwell ceased. Chenault told Stilwell the missions had to stop. He gave his reasons, and you can imagine what this did for their already strained relationship. The whole raison d'etre for the AVG was already finished. Their deeds and all the hoopla that surrounded the Flying Tigers were known throughout the U.S. military and in the American public. But the time had come to shut this outfit down and integrate everyone into the U.S. Armed Services, or back into the Armed Services, since most everyone had been snatched from one branch of the military or another. While all this was going on in early 1942, Chenault and the AVG were still on China's payroll, still accruing their wages and bonuses from CAMCO. So the talk began to hot up about putting an end to this state of affairs and getting all these hot shots into the U.S. Army.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
0: As for Chenault, against the best wishes of General George Marshall and General Henry Hap Arnold, the army offered him the rank of colonel to come back to the fold. Chenault, let it be known, nothing less than a star would satisfy him. So they raised him to brigadier general. And the underlying politics involved promoting Stilwell's man, Clayton Bissell, as well, slightly outranking Chenault when the promotion came. The thinking on high was that no one needed the AVG anymore. By taking in all these pilots and some of the crew, it would be a quick and dirty way for the Army Air Force to absorb a whole new group of veterans of air-to-air combat. There wasn't a lot of training the Flying Tiger pilots needed by April, May 1942. What these AVG pilots had seen between December and March was more action than many of these pilots would see over the course of the entire war. This is where it got real ugly. Considering everything they had gone through up till now, including all the diseases, lousy food, miserable jungle conditions, insect infestations, the snakes, and always being the last priority for parts and equipment, they figured the least that would happen would be that they would return to their former units, maybe with some sort of promotion in rank and recognition for what they had achieved. What they got instead were orders to join the Army Air Force along with Chenault. The volunteers who had come from the Marines and the Navy too, they got pushed into the Army. And if they didn't like it, they found out later they could take their chances with the draft board back home stateside. This is how it was given to them by no less a person than Bissell himself. They were told in as undiplomatic a way as possible, to take it or leave it. Chenault fought to get his men what they wanted, but having sacred cows like General Marshall and General Arnold working against you was a significant handicap. So Chenault used his one and final ace up his sleeve. FDR had instructed Chenault that if he ever needed him, he was granted the authority to use this private channel. So, Chenault wrote the 32nd President and told him the AVG would remain a much more effective fighting force, if left to continue as they were, with him in charge. Nobody at that time outtrumped FDR, so with his urging, they worked out a compromise. As planned, the AVG would merge with the Army Air Force as scheduled on July 4th, 1942, and Chenault would remain in command of the air forces in China as a one-star general. Chenault commanded the fighters, and his political rival, Clayton Bissell, took the bombers. This wasn't what Marshall wanted, but he went along with it. When FDR dies, however, in April of 1945, Chenault's big strong buddy will be gone, and he'll be shown the door right quick, but that was all in the future. Despite the compromise worked out, the damage had been done to the general morale of the AVG pilots and crew. But all were loyal to Chenault, and they knew he bled for them. When Chenault gave everyone the news about the way it was going to be, it spelled the beginning of the end of the Flying Tigers. Japan, in a matter of four to five months, had smashed and grabbed everything in Southeast Asia that once belonged to the Western colonial powers. The political order of East Asia, since the start of the 20th century was now turned on its head. And at the most painful moment when Japan was at its most powerful and was causing the most death and destruction and there was little or no good news to report, the deeds of the AVG from their first date of combat on December 20th till the outfit was formally closed down helped keep people's heads up. At a time when a little good news went a long way, like a beacon of hope, they were in the right place at the right time. April 18th, 1942, was Lieutenant Colonel James Doolittle's famous surprise air raid on Tokyo. It wasn't very successful as daring raids went. And under instructions from Clayton Bissell, no one let Chenault in on the secret. And when it was already a done deal, Chenault was like Captain Hindsight, telling everyone this was a mistake and they shouldn't have done this. And Chenault knew what was coming next. Massive Japanese retaliation. If things weren't bad enough already on the Chinese coast, now the Japanese launched an aggressive campaign inland to destroy any of these air bases that could be used to launch bombing raids against the Japanese islands. And later on, from these new captured inland air bases, the Japanese were able to extend their reach westward into China. As for Burma, the Japanese march north through Burma towards the China border, slowed but was never stopped. And this leads us to one of the last major battles that the AVG participated in. This involved the Battle of Salween River. As I mentioned, there was no stopping the Japanese once they started marching north through Burma to the China border. Though the RAF and AVG were able to land many hard punches, all they really did was slow down Japan's inevitable taking of Burma. All the Allies, sooner or later, had to retreat to safety. The AVG base at Loiwing was taken and the group scattered. After the loss of this air base, the only thing in the way of China and the Japanese army was the 1,750-mile-long Salween River. In Chinese, this river is called the Nujiang. It separated northern Burma from Yunnan. On May 6, 1942, the last of the Allies scooted across the bridge to the China side, and once there, the British, along with the Chinese, blew the bridge up. No big deal as far as the Japanese were concerned. They started building a pontoon bridge right away, and the 20,000 soldiers, rather than continuing their march into China, had to sit around and chill for a while until the Japanese engineers rebuilt this bridge. So everyone on the Japanese side of the river were sort of sitting ducks, exposed with their backs literally up against the steep cliffs. Four AVG pilots flew to greet them on May 7th, 1942. Seeing what was up, they promptly destroyed whatever had been built so far of this pontoon bridge and strafed along the cliffs where the Japanese soldiers were exposed. For the next several days, Chennault threw everything he could get his hands on at these luckless Japanese soldiers. It was a classic turkey shoot, and this battle of Salween River Gorge pushed the Japanese back away from the Yunnan border, and this would be the one and only effort by Japan to invade China from this southern border. The defeat of Japan at the Salween River was a massive propaganda victory for China. Everyone knew the significance of this victory over the enemy, and although the Flying Tigers didn't do this alone, they were sort of singled out in the consciousness of the local Chinese for what had been achieved. On this same day, by the way, America and Japan fought the Battle of Coral Sea, a naval battle that didn't end in victory but stunned Japan enough so that a month later, when the Battle of Midway took place, they weren't fighting at optimal conditions. And Midway, we all know, was a major turning point in the war in the Pacific. Then, after this Battle of Salween River, to make matters worse for Japan, a squad of six AVG pilots flew a deadly surprise raid on the Japanese-occupied Gialam Air Base in Hanoi. The devastation was total. There uh, had also been an air raid by the Japanese uh, on the city of Guilin that had been repulsed by the AVG, and then a last one uh, on the 4th of July, where the AVG attacked a Japanese air base in Hengyang in Hunan. And these victories in Guilin and Hengyang were pretty much the final victories credited to the Flying Tigers. On June 20th, the people of Guilin held a celebration in honor of the AVG, and the following proclamation was made by the local authorities. Quote, Guardians of the air, you heroes of the American flying tigers and the Chinese divine hawks. After our long expectation and to our great cheerfulness, you have annihilated 11 Japanese vultures in the air above Guilin on June 13th. This is the most brilliant merit of air combat that has ever been achieved in Guilin. You have once more created your great glory of extinguishing your enemy in the air. We, the 300,000 citizens of Guilin, are especially delighted. We are sure that all the people of China and all the Allies will take this to be an everlasting token of remembrance. Today, we, the 300,000 citizens of Guilin, are presenting you our heartiest congratulations and the highest respect to you. Let us yell, long live the American Flying Tigers, long live the Chinese Divine Hawks, long live the cooperation between the USA and China, signed the Guilin Airmen Comforting Evening Party. The Chinese Divine Hawks were the China version of the Flying Tigers, although the focus of this podcast is on the AVG and the role of the Americans, all along the battles were being fought in cooperation with Chinese forces. When Independence Day 1942 rolled around, not everyone in the AVG stayed on after the transition. In fact, most didn't, despite Chenault's pleading. Some just felt, hey man, I'm a Marine. What the heck am I going to do in the Army? I'm out of here. Many who decided to move on delayed their departure a couple extra weeks in order to give Chenault some extra time to train the latest recruits for this new 23rd fighter group. But after paying their due to Chenault to the extent that they were willing, these AVG pilots and crew made their way back to the USA in dribs and drabs. Once they were back in the States, they were able to re-enlist in the service where they felt they belonged, Navy, Marines, or whatever. Some had decided they had had enough of this war, and they took stock of their situation and decided this would be the perfect time to get in on the ground floor of the budding aviation industry. As for Chenault... He moved up to Chongqing, where he was based, serving much to General Marshall and Arnold's chagrin as commander of the CATF, the China Air Task Force. He did this until March of 1943. And finally, after getting his second star and becoming a major general, he was put in charge of the 14th Air Force. There was this bizarre farewell party in Chongqing that Song Meiling threw for the AVG crew. Not many of them went and rained very hard that night, and some elected to blow it off. Let me quote from uh, Daniel Ford from his book, Flying Tigers. Quote, That evening, Madame Jiang put on a party for the AVGs. It was planned as a barbecue, but rain moved it indoors. The guests drank non-alcoholic punch, Madame led them in a game of musical chairs, and Chenault was presented with an oil portrait of himself and the Jiangs. At 11 p.m., the Americans, with what relief can only be imagined drove back through the rain and mud to their quarters at the airfield, end quote. And once FDR passed away in April 1945, Chennault's enemies in high places forced his retirement. This was on July 8, 1945, a month before the atomic bombings put an exclamation point on the end of the war. Chennault claimed that 299 Japanese aircraft had been destroyed by his AVG fighters. Of the AVG... 12 of their P-40s were shot out of the sky by their Japanese opponents, and 61 destroyed on the ground. A third of those planes had been abandoned by the AVG when they hastily bolted from their base in Loy Wing. Chenault further claimed another 153 more planes on top of the 299 were shot down, but could not be proven. 23 AVG pilots were killed. 10 were shot down, 3 were killed on the ground, and the rest died in flying accidents. Camco paid out 268 of these $500 bonuses for Japanese planes destroyed. The Japanese and their propaganda to the home audience claimed they had shot down 554 of these AVG planes. Chenault only wished that he had that many to lose. At most, throughout the period of the AVG's existence, he was never able to get more than a dozen or so planes in the air at any given time but it was the cooperation between China and the USA that provided the underlying foundation that made the overall mission of the AVG a success. There was more to it than shooting down Japanese planes. The Chinese had provided all the support in the construction of airfields, runways, and buildings. They also manned the early warning systems devised by Chenault. And whenever a Flying Tiger pilot was forced to bail and parachute to safety, Time and again, the local Chinese on the ground found them, got them back to safety. You see, the Flying Tigers all carried these so-called blood chits. These were notices that they carried with them about A4 size printed on silk. And all the pilots would sew them on the back of their flight jackets. And if the worst happened and they got shot down or had to parachute to safety, any literate Chinese who found them could read the words printed on that silk. Yang Ren Lai Hua, Zhu Jun Min Yi Ti, And it was signed by the Hong Kong Wei Yuan Hui, or Aviation Committee. The bloodshed specifically said, quote, This foreigner has come to China to help in the war. Soldiers and civilians, one and all, should rescue and protect him. And it worked. When pilots crashed, the local Chinese on the ground came to their aid and got them back to the base. Even if you couldn't read the characters, the nationalist China flag was prominently displayed on the bloodshed, and people knew what that was. No reward was promised, but civilians knew if they helped bring a pilot to safety, there was something in it for them. These bloodsheds were also used prominently in the Korean War as well. After July 4th, 1942, it was all over. The five AVG pilots who stayed behind, well, they went on to cause even further grief for Japan as part of the 23rd Fighter Group. As a tribute to these flying tigers, the A-10 warthogs of today's 23rd Fighter Group are painted with the shark mouth design that graced the P-40s of the AVG. When the war was over, Chenault worked closely with Chiang Kai-shek to establish the Civil Air Transport, or CAT. This was, a, this was a company that ran all kinds of contract missions for the government. And this organization, after Chenault's death, went on to become the infamous Air America the outfit made famous by Mel Gibson and Robert Downey Jr. in the 1990 movie Air America, of course, covertly owned by our very own Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, it ceased operation in 1976. Chenault, till his dying day, remained loyal to Chiang Kai-shek and the KMT regime, and he continued to provide advice throughout the Civil War and after Chiang moved to Taiwan. As he lied dying of cancer in 1958, Song Mei Ling visited him on his deathbed. Not bad for a guy from the deepest part of the backwoods of Louisiana and Texas. He was a legend in his own time and ended up a role model for a lot of people. There was no doubt about his personal love of China and the bonds he made with so many Zhongguo Lao bei It may have been the money at first that brought Chennault to China, but he joined arms with the Chinese for eight years, often at the risk of his life to help in the war of resistance against the Japanese. His second wife, Chen Mei, Anna Chennault, carried his mantle forward, and she went on to play all kinds of interesting roles in business and government as a consultant. Although her ties to the Jiangs were well known, Anna Chennault also had close ties to leaders in the PRC. She was an oft-used diplomatic back-channel and was useful to the U.S. government in business for her ties to both CCP and KMT officials. Claire Chenault had written of the AVG, quote, The group that the experts had predicted would not last three weeks in combat had fought for seven months over Burma, China, Thailand, and French Indochina, destroying 299 planes and another 153 probably destroyed. All of this with a loss of 12 P-40s in combat and 61 on the ground, including the 22 burned at Loi Wing. Four pilots were killed in air combat, six were killed by anti-aircraft fire, three by enemy bombs on the ground, and three were taken prisoner. Ten more died as a result of flying accidents. Although the Japanese promised on their radio broadcast to shoot AVG prisoners as bandits, they treated our three prisoners as well as regular British and American POWs. I took it as an indication of the enemy's genuine respect for our organization. On July 4th, 1991, 49 years after they were disbanded, the U.S. government gave the AVG members veteran status. In telling this story, you may have noticed I haven't mentioned the names of any of these heroes. Well, almost everyone who was closely associated with the AVG was a hero in one way or another. There were so many incredibly interesting men and women on the periphery of this story. If you want more than this generalized overview of the AVG, I suggest to start with Daniel Ford's book, and you'll find resources abound, both amateur and otherwise, that make a nice collective history of the AVG, the Flying Tigers. I'm only going to name one AVG pilot. This was a guy by the name of Robert William Prescott. He was part of the contingent that opted not to stay on with Chenault after tea day on uh, July 4th, 1942. Bob Prescott made it back to the States and then continued to serve his country by flying more than 300 missions over the Burma Hump, resupplying bases in China with badly needed equipment. The famous Burma Hump over the Himalayas ran from Dinjan in northernmost Assam, out of Japan's reach, to Kunming in Yunnan province. Bob Prescott, after the war, along with a bunch of former AVG pilots, founded an all-cargo airline called the Flying Tiger Line. He leveraged his fame, all his military connections, and bet big on the air cargo industry. He became wildly successful and later on took the company public. In 1989, the Flying Tiger line was purchased by Federal Express, now, of course, known as FedEx. And it was from these routes acquired from the Flying Tiger line purchase that allowed FedEx to become the international logistics powerhouse that they are today. And believe it or not, My first job out of college was with this company. My cousin Dennis, who just last year retired from the company after more than three decades, hooked me up with my first job. And may I say, if it had been legal to use chimpanzees to do the work I had to do, they could have done it. But hey, you got to start somewhere, I guess. I spent eight years there, my whole 20s, and worked my way up the ranks to middle management. A month after FedEx officially took over the Flying Tiger line in August 1989, I bought a one-way ticket to Hong Kong and ended up working out there for nine years. And when I was in Chengdu last year, uh, in September 2014, I went to the Jianchuan Museum complex and saw the AVG Museum, the Feihu Qibinguan. Chengdu real estate mogul Dr. Fan Jianchuan has put together... This whole cluster of museums that all focus on recent Chinese history. It's just south of Chengdu. The whole place was just fantastic. And I'm going to visit again, but I'm going to stay for a couple of days to take in all 18 of these museums. Next time you're in Chengdu, go check the place out. If you enjoy looking at Cultural Revolution quiche and memorabilia, this is the ultimate place. The Jianchuan Museum Complex. I'll put a link to that on my website. And to show you the amazing power of the Laszlo Montgomery name and that of the humble China History podcast, I was able to obtain the whole VIP treatment when I was there. This included getting to meet the great man himself, Fan Jianchuan. I got to chat with him for a while and tell him about the CHP, and we had lunch together, and, oh, the time just flew by. What an electrifying man. I could just feel his energy just standing next to him. In the Flying Tiger Museum, Dr. Fan had large photos of all the AVG pilots on this huge, massive wall. And there he was, Bob Prescott. He had shut down between five and six Japanese planes. I told Dr. Fon that although he had already passed away uh, when I joined, he was the boss for my first company I worked for out of college. He was so impressed that he mentioned meeting me in his Weibo and that I had worked for, you know, one of the Flying Tiger pilots and did this China history show. He sure got a kick out of that. He asked me to get the word out to all collectors of Flying Tiger memorabilia. If you're looking for a home for your collection, consider his museum. He'll find a good place for it and allow the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Chinese and foreigners who visit every year to see and learn about the story of the AVG. So that, me little beauties, is going to be that. I hope over these two episodes that you were able to understand the story of the AVG and the role they played, not only in World War II, but in helping to create long-lasting good relations between China and the U.S. I mentioned at the outset of Part 1 that there were plenty of past incidents that have shaken U.S.-China relations, but we'll always have this shared past history to look back on that showed genuine friendship and cooperation. Not only will we in the United States always remember the heroic deeds of these men and women, so will the people of China. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from the city, Los Angeles, California. Please consider joining me next time, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.